today we pick up in this little teaching series in the Sermon on the Mount, and we're in the Beatitudes. We're right into the first Beatitude, and if you're new to the church or churchianity or anything like that, or maybe you've been around the church for a long time, uh, these feel really familiar. Uh, this is often thought of as the preamble to Jesus's like Magna Carta, like this is his preeminent teaching. And yet then there's this kind of wonky list at the front end of these eight or maybe nine blessings, depending on how you count them. And so we're going to take a slow roll through each of those, which will be about two months. And today we find ourselves in the first one. But to get us kind of into the headspace of thinking about the poor in spirit, a little story about a princess, because that's what you do at church. Uh, in 1909, there was a princess born in Romania, and you all know who I'm talking about, right? Yeah, her Royal Highness, Princess Aliana? Yes, of course. Uh, well, in fact, th this princess lived 81 years, and uh, 81 years later, in 1991, this same girl, born a princess, would be buried in a cemetery in Pennsylvania, and this would be a cemetery of a uh, Greek Orthodox monastery. That's quite the, the journey, and this girl, Princess Aliana, would be buried as Mother Alexandra. So she was the founder of the first English-speaking monastery in the States for women, and at her request, this following verse was on her gravestone. We do not live to ourselves, and we do not die to ourselves. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord, so then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. So this movement from princess to nun, or even priest, if you will, is, is a bit odd. This is kind of like the inversion of the fairy tale. Yes, like usually it starts off, you're from nowhere with nothing. It's the Cinderella story, and then all of a sudden, you are the princess. But here we see this interesting inversion. Like how did Her Royal Highness become the type of person who would willingly renounce all of her earthly possessions? Like not only would this make a great Netflix series, this is real life. And I see, if you start to read anything about Mother Alexandra, you'll see that there's, there is not a short story to her life, but there is a starting point to this. And it's uh, what Professor Rebecca Eklund calls the multi-sided prism that is the first beatitude. And if that sounds complicated, it's not. We're actually going to unpack this multi-sided prism. It's this beatitude that Eklund goes on to say tells two intertwined stories, one about humility and one about poverty. One about humility and one about poverty. It's a beatitude that Mother Alexandra, or if you just want to call her princess, uh, that she claimed this. It has the key to the entrance of the kingdom of heaven. So you go back, you know, to work tomorrow, or I don't know, you go to your Zoom meeting or step into a classroom and they say, oh, so what'd you do this weekend? I learned about the key to the entrance of the kingdom of heaven. What do you think people would say to that? They'd be like, oh, you're a part of a cult. Oh, okay, this is, that's, we're done now. No, uh, there's something about, like, this is not some ancient, fluffy, religious thing. Mother Alexandra died before, I know a lot of you were born, uh, not me, uh, just saying. See, I try to make jokes here, Kate, and they just, they feel right, but they're so wrong, so keep them going. Uh, see, this is a beatitude that Mother Alexandra said has the king, like a key to the entrance of the kingdom of heaven, and so on the docket for today, humility, poverty, and the kingdom of heaven, and so what we're going to do is we're just going to work our way backwards through that statement, humility, poverty, and the kingdom of heaven. So what is the kingdom of heaven? 
This might be review. Uh, it might feel fresh. But according to Jesus, the kingdom of heaven is reality. You can think about it as the light in the darkness. And it's not necessarily what is illumined by the, the light, but, but it is the light itself. So it's not just what you can see because of the light. The kingdom of heaven is the light. And this is where God's rule of love and joy and justice are alive and active. It's where they are happening 24-7, 365. This is what Jesus claims has come near. Or as uh, the, the gospel or the evangelist uh, Matthew will say in Matthew 4:17, repent or change your minds, turn around, think differently. The kingdom of heaven has come near. And really, this is Jesus claiming to any who will come and listen and open up their hearts and minds to receive more of God. See, sometimes I think like uh, we hear repentance language and automatically there's, or at least in me, there's this, I don't know, revulsion to it. It's like, don't you tell me what to do. Now that's saying more about my inner disposition and spirit than yours, uh, but there's a, a reaction against it. Jesus is not saying that. He's saying, open up your minds to the reality of God. And in fact, you get to see a picture of it here. And I think it'd be helpful for us to just notice maybe what the kingdom of heaven is not. See, the kingdom of heaven is not this agenda to be advanced. It's not like a, uh, I don't know, I, yesterday we had our first canvasser for the midterms come up to our door uh, and I promptly dismissed them. No, I, so it's not like we are then canvassing for the Lord and the kingdom. And the kingdom of heaven is not the church. See, we, we get to participate in the kingdom because the kingdom of heaven is a reality to be received and then embodied. Jesus is the one who builds this reality, who sets it in motion. We participate and receive and embody it. See, the kingdom of heaven is where God's will is done completely. And Jesus says, this thing, this thing is, is here, it's, it's now. And yet we feel some tension in there. I was listening to a podcast just this morning that globally one in three women will encounter abuse. In the United States, one in 3.5 women will encounter domestic interpersonal abuse that can range from verbal to physical to sexual. I mean, this is just something where if you look at one, like 50% of the human population, you just go, oh my goodness, like, no, like, where is the kingdom? So this is the tension that we live in, this thing that's already here, that's been inaugurated in Jesus and yet has not fully come into existence. You see, I, I think it'd be easy for us to talk about the kingdom of heaven or come and they'd be like, wow, this feels kind of like a lecture. It feels maybe a bit abstract, like this is just religious fluff. But notice when Jesus says kingdom, he's speaking in political terms. So we may not want to like engage in politics or something of like, what are the two things you don't talk about at family gatherings? Religion and Jesus is doing both of them. So why don't we do it in a way that is honoring to people? Because that's how Jesus does it. He actually looks at the people who are around him and then makes intense political statements. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of God language is intensely political. So when Jesus says the kingdom of heaven has come, come near, it's this raucous claim that the things that were are going to change. Could we, could we go for a little change? I don't know. Sometimes I, I would desire that, especially after the past you know, 18, 24 months or something. I really, I love how uh, New Testament scholar Tim Gombas, he speaks to this, this tension that if Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God or the kingdom of 
of heaven has come near, that a new thing is needed. Here's why. God's original commission to humanity was to exercise rule and dominion over creation, overseeing its flourishing and managing its life-giving and humanity-sustaining capacities. Humanity has failed to rule creation for the glory of God. But this is precisely what Jesus has been doing in his ministry. He is overseeing the spread of God's rule of shalom wherever he goes, freeing people of demons and sickness and calling everyone to enter the life-giving kingdom of God. This is what the kingdom of heaven is about. At our best, that's what this church could be about. See, unlike Mother Alexandra's former kingdom, the kingdom of heaven does not cease at death. That's true of Jesus' story. It doesn't end at death, and like in Mother Alexandra's case, it doesn't end with a political agenda changing. Like, her kingdom literally came to an end because of communism. This is not the case with the kingdom of heaven. It is enduring. And in fact, with, with Jesus and the kingdom, there's a twist because it is the place of death that then becomes the way through to new life because you get the cross, which is the place of death, but it's also the place where Jesus is exalted as the king and then conquers death by rising from the grave. This is the great and enduring truth that we sit in. By the way, if that isn't a reality, then we're wasting our time here. But that is the enduring reality. And Jesus has a mind toward this thing breaking in to the place of brokenness that he finds himself, which is the first century Israel-Palestine. So Jesus is just from the outset flipping the script. And then he comes and he starts saying some stuff in the Sermon on the Mount. He essentially goes to the unblessable. And he starts announcing blessing. He goes to the undeserving, to the down and out, to, in our imagination, uh, the mother who cannot be a mother or the woman who has been a mother too many times and knows it and yet continues to go back to those same patterns and practices that yield death. See, Jesus goes to the unblessable and then he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. So if that's the kingdom of heaven and, and the kingdom of heaven is on offer to the unblessable first, who are these poor in spirit? So if you're taking notes now, you can write poverty. And to get at this, I think we would do well to just ask an initial question. Is Jesus talking about money or is he talking about spirituality? Like is blessed are the poor in spirit an economic statement or is it a religious and spiritual statement? And you don't have to say it out loud, but which one do you think? We'll get, we'll get to it. So in other words, is this like a commentary on the economic situation? Remember, if you look in Matthew 4.24, you're going to see who the crowd is. It's people who are paralyzed. It's people who are riddled with seizures. It's people who are demonized. These are not people who have like a good side hustle and a main gig that's making them a lot of money. No, these are people who are literally down and out. They're on the periphery of society. This is who Jesus is speaking to. So he's saying... Okay, yeah, your, your spiritual condition in light of your poverty, or is Jesus talking entirely about spiritual poverty? This is what a conservative theologian, D.A. Carson, would call a spiritual bankruptcy. So which one is it? And, and maybe it won't shock you. I still found it surprising when I was, you know, been doing reading for this. And there's so much ink spilled over this beatitude. It almost feels disproportionate to the rest of the beatitudes. I have a hunch. I'm going to share my hunch with you. My hunch is that when Jesus starts talking about status, 
specifically blessing in relationship to our possessions, we get nervous. And let me just say this, I get nervous. All of a sudden there's this thing welling up in me and if it's true for you, then let's just say we, there's this like self-protection, this justifying, even um, like some accusation and some defensiveness that comes in around Jesus and money and possessions. And if Jesus's words, this will be a little interactive moment we'll have here. If Jesus's words about the kingdom of heaven it being extended first to the poor, if that kind of gets your hackles up, if that, I don't know, makes you feel a little bit more sweaty than you normally are, um, let's just ask why. Let's just pause for a moment, like ask the spirit, like why might it be? Like what in you and your relationship to your possessions are Jesus's words threatening? Maybe you write that down, maybe you tuck that away. But my guess is that there's something, and maybe there's not, maybe there's not, maybe this is not a thing for you, but my guess is that there might be. See, what, what you come to find in Jesus in the Gospels is that Jesus is not afraid to talk about money. He's not afraid to. He's not afraid to talk about how we attach significance to our belongings. Um, have any of you tried to go to your parents' house or your grandparents' house and like help them move from one space to a smaller space? And then you're talking about photos or maybe you're talking about like an old sofa or a chair that has been in the corner and is covered with books. And you're like, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna put this in the give pile, right? No, 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 but that's where I sat when I was feeding your mother and, anybody? Have you seen this? Have you experienced this in yourself? Jesus speaks to this stuff. And contrary to our gut response, this is actually good news for us. It's good news that Jesus speaks to how we attach ourselves to wealth and possessions because the kingdom of heaven is not a kingdom of shame. It is a kingdom of invitation and delight and honor. And it is a, commu like a, a community of challenge and a kingdom of challenge, but it is not one of shame. And I think there's a story that kind of brings this to light in a really beautiful way. You know Zacchaeus, the wee little man? The wee little man was he, he climbed up in the? Yeah, because the Lord he just wanted to see. And um, as a savior passed on by, he looked up in the tree and he said, Zacchaeus, come, come down, because I'm going to your house today. Do you remember what Zacchaeus did after he encountered Jesus? Well, after Jesus imposes his, his hospitality on Zacchaeus, that's the only thing he does. No coercion, no manipulation. Just, by the way, hey, I'm, I'm coming over. Let's party. And so Zacchaeus receives him in. Do you remember what he does? He gives half his possessions away to who? The poor. And then what does he do? He makes restitution, or I think the more appropriate word is he makes reparations for all the wrongdoing that was done. This is what we encounter the Jesus who brings honor and dignity and delight and not shame. And Zacchaeus is a picture. By the way, Zacchaeus and the way he earned his wealth was at great cost to human bodies, which is often th the case. See, this, this radical encounter with Jesus, it, it begins to, to mess, I think, with us. And what it shows is this picture of how Jesus releases us from the stranglehold of what's called the scarcity mentality. And, and 
A scarcity mentality essentially says there are only a limited amount of goods and profits and people and resources. So if I don't go out there and get mine, then I won't have enough. And if we have this and we have to protect it, because do you start to feel how the anxiety ramps up? I, I was trying to think of, a, of something that would encapsulate this. So um, I was inspired by Kate Maybe and this book by Sky Jutani called uh, What If Jesus Was Serious? So I doodled. Wait for it. Ta-da. So th this is us in the scarcity mentality. You notice it frames our whole life, but rather than just being a place that is around us, it begins to literally get its way around us. It defaces us. And if you notice around the, the hands of this um, odd person, there are shackles. So what does Jesus do? Jesus comes into this space of scarcity and he announces, blessed are the poor in spirit. He releases us from that space, invites us into a new space called abundance. And look at Jesus here. He's just like, yes, abundance. The scarcity is removed. But what do you notice? What's still around the hands of this person? The shackles. It's as though there's this, this idea that, well, what if I let go of this thing? Well, you see, Jesus doesn't just stop and say, blessed is the, the poor in spirit. What does he continue to say? He says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. See, Jesus not only removes the shackles of scarcity, or excuse me, like the, just the around, like that, that whole framework and invites us into the kingdom. No, he then says, I want to honor you. I want to give you much. And so here's Jesus trying to crown us and honor us. But he's like, uh, what, what gives? So this might be silly, and I had a blast drawing this, by the way. But this feels like me. That Jesus is there literally saying, I have the place of delight and honor and dignity on offer. Not that I'm putting myself in the poor in spirit, but I'm just saying that in general, the kingdom is being extended to the most unlikely people. And yet, these hands are held tightly. It's this white-knuckled grip Letting, and, and really letting go of that stuff is scary as hell. And so again, is Jesus talking about poverty or is he talking about spirituality? Maybe both. See, the word that Jesus employs to talk about the poor, it's not the ordinary word for the poor. If he wanted to use that word, then he would have been using the word about, uh, you remember the widow who goes to the temple, she's gonna give her offering, she's got the widow's might. If you grew up in churchianity, then that might be familiar. If not, let me tell you. There's a gal, she's poor, and she goes and she gives out of her poverty. But that's not the word that Jesus used to describe the poor in spirit. Jesus actually uses another word, it's a word we could describe as a beggar. And we actually see this word show up in the Gospels again. Do you remember the story of Lazarus and the rich man? There's a story where the rich man dies and goes, and he's in the grave, he's in the ground, he's like, oh, I just want, la send Lazarus my servant, and you notice that, make him dip his finger, give me a little taste, I just want to wet my whistle, um, that's what it says in the Greek, and there, in that moment, you encounter the poor man, that is the poverty that Jesus speaks of. And what Jesus does when he says blessed are, we could say, the beggars, is he's not saying it's not just the poor. It's not just those who can even rub two pennies together. No, it is those who literally have nothing, that they are utterly dependent upon the generosity of those who would give alms. It is the beggars. 
And we could notice a whole bunch of things here, but there's two that kind of caught my attention. Is one, uh, we just can't escape that this is kind of about money. And as uncomfortable as that makes me and maybe it makes you, I think this is then where we have to deal with the nervousness we feel around Jesus, possessions, and the poor. Because I, I found myself asking questions like, is Jesus actually favoring the poor? And you can read uh, what are called, uh, they're liberation theologians, and there's brilliant works being done that say essentially that um, we are not all free until all are free. That poverty is an injustice that God stands against. And as we are complicit in, I don't know, like I think about even the clothing I wear, that that probably, like this is the type of granular level that um, you can get into. I'm not, I'm, we're not going to go there, but there's this question, is Jesus favoring the poor? Does that mean that he opposes the wealthy? Does that mean he opposes us? Because y'all, globally speaking, we are really, really wealthy. I don't know, what do you think? This is just one of those teachings that you're like, yes, I want to come back here and continue to receive the teachings of Jesus. I, this is not meant to like be an indictment or anything like that. I just want us to hear the heart of God, which I think Jesus is bringing forward. There's two examples that we can come to because you could think, okay, maybe this is just like, I don't know, your speculation. Well, let's, let's see. Uh, Psalm 72. Psalm 72 is this prayer essentially for those who are in leadership. And it's that they would act in keeping with the heart of God, that there would be justice and equity for the poor. This is what we hear. And, and there's also this implicit rebuke for those who don't. Uh, this is Psalm 72, 12 to 14. For he, speaking of this benevolent king, will rescue the poor who cry out. And the afflicted who have no helper, he will have pity on the poor and the helpless and save the lives of the poor. He will redeem them from oppression and violence for their lives are precious in his sight. Or in keeping with this, in the heart of God, in Isaiah 66, the prophet announces, kind of channeling God's speak in this moment, these are the ones I look on with favor. Those who are humble or poor and contrite in spirit. You see, when Jesus comes on the scene and has this arrangement of people in front of him, the uh, demonized and the hurting and literally the physically broken, he then starts speaking about the poor in spirit. And it seems as though he's referring both to those who have been dispossessed and abandoned. That is, they are, you could call them like spiritual zeros and the ones who have been dispossessed and abandoned by Israel, the ones who are on the abused side of this equation. It's as though Jesus has both in view. And, and really, um, I, I was reading back through this and I was like, oh, is this sound like then the moment comes where I turn in the teaching and say, so community, so gateway, we are gonna make a vow of poverty because I think a strong case could be made. That's, by the way, that's not what we're doing. Um, but even, e even when you see people like Mother Alexandra turn and make a willful vow of poverty, it is not because poverty is a virtue. Poverty stands in opposition to the flourishing of humanity. I, don't, I actually think that for those of us who are privileged, that that's how God desires all of us to be. And as the kingdom of heaven is brought fully to bear, there will not be the inequity that we see. But there's something that comes to the fore here, not a vow of poverty, 
Maybe if that's what the Lord's leading you to, I'd be glad to chat about it with you. I might, I might not really know a lot, but we could connect you to like a priest or somebody who's done that. But I think there's a question that, that we would do well to wrestle with. And it's not this question of like, how do I become poor so that I can get the blessing as though being poor is a virtue, but more the question is like, where is Jesus and how can I and we and all of us move to where Jesus is? How can I be with Jesus? And in fact, this is going to be a guiding question for us throughout the Beatitudes is saying, where is Jesus moving? And it seems as though Jesus is saying those beggars, whether you count them as just spiritually bankrupt or literally bankrupt and they have nothing, those are that, these are the people. These are the ones to whom the kingdom of heaven is extended to first. This is where you will find me. And for some among us, especially uh, those of you uh, for whom justice is kind of hardwired into your inner woman or your inner man, and you, I don't know, you identify with the poor, you hear this and there's a tension for you to like roll your spiritual eyes because you're like, yes, finally we're having this conversation. Like, let us do this already. Why do you think I'm a foster parent or I practice a certain type of law or I, I volunteer with Rise Up? I wanna do educational enrichment with kids over in Sherman Hill because this is where Jesus moves. Like, why do you, let's do this already. And so I am grateful for you and please continue to do that. Please spur us on and give your gift in greater measure because it helps us to see what that looks like. And please be patient with us because for the rest of us, we have some wrestling to do and I, I, it's important that as we close our time um, that, we, that we wrestle with that question of asking, where is Jesus? And, and what might be standing in the way? And I think if we could sum up the barrier between where Jesus is and where we are, it could be one word. This might be an overgeneralization, but I found it helpful. It's this word pride. So we end in talking about humility by talking about pride. And one of my favorite writers, uh, Ronald Rollheiser, he, he gets at pride by talking about humility. And this is what Rollheiser says. Spontaneously, we tend to think of humility as self-effacement, self-deprecation, as never blowing our own horn, as always first waiting to be asked before we step forward to offer our gifts. We identify humility with non-assertiveness. And I just want to uh, pause right there. Um, I'm not an Iowa native. I've been in the Midwest for over a decade. This is Midwest nice. This is like the non-assertive, but in the back of my mind, it's like, how dare you not ask me? So, so we pick back up. I just, maybe that was like a low-key dig at the Midwest. I don't know, sorry. Okay, Rollheiser. There's a lot of truth in that. And we've probably experienced, is my point in sharing that little odd anecdote. But as someone once said, a heresy is something that's 98% correct. Uh, the other 2% is what hangs us. Rollheiser for the encouragement this morning. Uh, that's the case here. Humility is, in fact, a healthy self-effacement and non-assertion. But then it becomes complicated. Self-effacement is not self-deprecation. And indeed, there's nothing enlightened about the shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. And so I think we would do well to talk about this. Pride. Like, what, what, what do we make of this? Because in my experience, pride is not generally viewed as a vice. I mean, think about how we talk about pride. We um, talk about being proud of our 
I don't know, our work. We talk about being proud of our family or we talk about being uh, proud of our school or our home and we call that pride of place. And these are not necessarily evil things. I mean, my one-year-old Silas, who was up here at the beginning, um, he has like the, it's the dowel and the wooden rings and he puts the ring on there and I'm like, yes. What is that feeling that, that, that I experienced in that moment? I would say I'm proud of him. So I'm not trying to vilify our delight in these things. It's calling out the reality that pride is viewed more as a vice or as a virtue than a vice. And so if that's not all bad, what's the challenge? Well, the challenge is the subtlety of pride that it's sneaky, and this is what I mean, um, continuing to talk about my kids. Uh, I have a toddler, and you may see him around doing some sort of shenanigans, but what I've learned about having uh, this small human as a roommate is um, he's emotionally honest. He is not emotionally constipated like most of us. If he wants a thing, he will tell you. If that thing does not come, be it food or a toy, there will be protests to be had. And, and granted, like, if this was an adult, there would be issues. His brain has not fully developed, so there has to be grace in that space, you know? Um, but some of us, some of us, I would count myself in this, um, we may not have, like, the outward display of emotional honesty like a toddler, but on the inside, th we operate from that place of pride that subtly is informing how we're, it's that Midwest nice. We see so we privately operate in that place. Rollheiser addresses this again. He says, as we mature morally and religiously, it becomes almost impossible not to compare ourselves with others who are struggling and to not feel both a certain smugness that we're not like them and a certain disdain for their condition. Amen? Pride, therefore, in the mature person takes the form of refusing to be small before God. Hear that language, refusing to be small before God and refusing to recognize properly our interconnection with others. It is a refusal to accept our own poverty, namely to recognize that we are standing before God and others with empty hands and all we have and have achieved has come our way by grace more than by our own efforts. And for some of us, as I'm saying that, and the thing that rises up and that you're saying in your heart is, you don't know how hard I worked. You don't know my family of origin. You don't know where I've come from. You do not know the type of things I've gone through, the work I did. did you, if you would have seen that grant proposal I wrote, it was immaculate. It was beautiful. I earned that. Again, I'm making some assumptions here. If, if this language about pride begins to get your hackles up, if you feel some discomfort in your tummy, let's just pay attention to that. And again, ask the spirit, why is this? Why? Why? When I hear about refusing to be small before God, does something happen in me? The North African theologian Augustine said it well. He said, pride made the soul desert God, to whom it should cling as the source of life and to imagine itself instead as the source of its own life. This idea of deserting or abandoning God to our own definition of flourishing. 
And if you're wondering again, is this just human speculation? Like, or did you just pull some nice quotes and curate some content to make a point? Here is the divine perspective, the scriptures. Uh, Psalm 138.6, though the Lord is great, he cares for the humble, but he keeps his distance from the proud. Or James 4, if you really want to get after it. Just read all of James and find yourself comfortable. I don't, I don't know. I wouldn't know what to do with that. It is deeply unsettling, but he gives more grace. That's why the scripture said God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Or, or if you want to hear more from the wisdom tradition, this is like the stuff that this, the people of God would root themselves in as like, I don't know, they put hashtags in front of this or something. Uh, but Proverbs 8, 13, to fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance. Evil behavior and perverse speech. Or Proverbs 15, 25, the Lord tears down the house of the proud. But you know whose house he builds up? He actually builds up the boundary stones, the stones of boundary around the place of the widow. That's where the Lord is doing his work. And so if there's anyone among us left wondering, gosh, is there some pride left in the resources, like the crevices of my inner woman or man, I want to help root those out this morning. So I found this tool called the arrogance exercise. It was not fun. Uh, so I thought we would go through it as a community a little bit. I pulled about, I don't know, six of these or something. So uh, just let yourself respond to these questions, like gut level. And if, yeah, let's go for it. Uh, not wanting to talk with someone or spend time with someone because they just don't quite measure up. Uh, thinking they should have asked me to do that. I would have done it better. Hearing about some leader's problems and feeling better about yourself because that has not happened to you. This one feels all too familiar, waiting to turn the conversation to highlight something that you have done. Okay, I'm alone on that one. Uh, feeling a good report from someone else's life threatens your worth. Or for men, being particularly defensive about something pointed out to you by a woman. Or for women, being particularly defensive about something pointed out to you by a man. There's a bunch more of those that are quite indicting. If you want, you can find them all. It's uh, Jones and Fontnots. I don't know how you say his name. Sorry, Michael. Uh, the Prideful Soul's Guide to Humility. So, see, the point I'm trying to get across is not like to leave here and make us feel guilty because church only has the gospel of guilt and forgiveness. No, like the gospel is more rich and textured and vibrant and beautiful than feel guilty. Jesus can deal with your guilt on the cross. Boom. No, it's like it's more encompassing and holistic and beautiful. The point that I'm trying to get across is that the kingdom of heaven is defined first by a culture of humility. And the thing that stands in the way is pride. Pride is like this cancer that actually takes the stuff that's meant for good and weaponizes it against the body. Pride in a body, which is the predominant language that can be seen in the New Testament, can actually be weaponized. And so I want to root this out in, this, in myself, in our community, so that what we see on the other side is the cultivation of humility. This doesn't mean like you go to church, I don't know, twice a month and you're like, yes, I am humble. No, this takes a lifetime. But as we move toward this with incremental steps, what we see is I think more and more of the kingdom of heaven manifest in, in, in one another and through one another. And I don't know, like, wouldn't you want the kingdom of heaven to like break out in the community you find yourself in? I think all of us would be down for a little bit more of the kingdom of heaven. Amen? 
This is where we talk back. Amen? There we go. We're engaged. It took 30 minutes, but we got there, folks. See, the kingdom of heaven is defined by a culture of humility, this poverty of spirit. And this is the call of the beatitude. And I think what this beatitude then sets in front of us is a place of turning around. See, Jesus' first words in Matthew 4, 17 were, turn around, change your mind, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We're going to every week say that again. Because every week there's a space where we need to turn afresh, to follow Jesus afresh. It's not like, oh, I need to be saved this week. No, no, no. We can actually rest in the, in the work of Jesus to continue to draw us into his life and love. And so I just invite you, as we kind of come to a close here, we're, we're going to do this work in practice. We're going to take the bread and the cup because there's this, this picture that's on offer to us to open up our hearts and minds. I think it looks something like this. That when we open up ourselves to the reality of Jesus, that Jesus, see, do you notice, I tried to capture this visually, Jesus is, <laughs> Jesus is actually interested in being with us. He, he wants to be close to us. And, and he wants, and then he's not going to go away. Like he's actually going to stay near. And then I didn't know how to represent this, I don't know, like as an artist or anything, and I'm not that, but maybe appeal to Kate, maybe. But like the idea then is that this community of abundance continues to flow outward, and there's more and more little, you know, there's a little tiny human there, and there's a medium-sized human, and there's a gal, and there's this, I don't know, person, maybe a guy because of the shorts, but who knows. And Jesus is there the whole stinking time because Jesus is going to be the one who shows us this. And so we want to take this into ourselves, literally into our bodies. So church, I just invite you to stand. And if you're willing, if you um, didn't get a chance to grab one, on your far left, there are these little, um, like, I don't know, body and blood of Jesus on the go. <laughs> and um, and the, the place of communion in the life of the church is a place um, of, of deep, deep reverence. Uh, we actually stand in this space today with with billions of Christians around the world. And so what we get to say is, is and we don't have to agree on this, but I think that the table of Jesus is radically open to anyone who would come to it. And does Jesus say, well, well, what's your political party? What's your gender identity? Does he like ask you to check a bunch of boxes before you come and share in his delight? And no, he says, come. And so that's what we want to see. We, we want to be reminded that we've been the ones who have, have, like Jesus said, come. And so let us do this. Let us take these moments here to respond in worship through song, to take the bread and the cup. And so I invite you now to take the body that was broken, to take the blood that was poured out as a gift, as an offering, as a way of Jesus saying, this is the blood of the new covenant, the place of forgiveness in my name. So church, let us continue uh, to, to worship.